Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. John Trapp has a storied career. He currently works as a behavioral analyst of fire. Yes, fire on the landscape. But prior to his career in, uh, in fire, he was deeply embedded in wolf recovery, wolf trapping, um, wolf non-lethal management engagement, you name it, he's been involved in it from a wolf perspective. And so I wanted to have him on the podcast. He has a, a, a bachelor's in political science. He got a master's in conservation biology. He's a veteran and just has a deep affinity for wolves, but has been involved in every step, essentially, of the wolf debate. As I said, from trapping to working with a uh, Indian tribes, Native American tribes, to working on the Mexican gray wolf, to working uh, in Yellowstone with Fish and Wildlife Service on the Endangered Species Act, to engaging farmers and ranchers from a long, non-lethal management perspective. So just enjoy this podcast, learn from it, soak it in. If you love it, share it with your friends, leave a review on Apple or Spotify, give us a five-star rating and help us grow the message that is coming out of this podcast. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a... A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years 
is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Yeah, you know, just, uh, it's funny how connections happen, right? Yeah. I don't know if you're a bar or so, do you know who Trevor Thompson is? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, just be careful. I think we can, there's a lot, uh, you're breathing. I can hear that in the mic. Yeah. It's so, better if it's up higher or lower. It depends. Are you a nose breather or a mouth yeah, breather? I mean, put it, if I put it in my <laughs> nose, does that help? How about down? How, yeah, I think that's fine. Here, well, I'll, it, I'll let you know. You got good sound volume? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It sounds great. Okay. It's ground. Sounds great. How do you know Trevor Thompson? So I was actually going through uh, the first time through Salt Lake, and um, there was a really sweet truck that was parked out front of uh, Black Rifle Coffee. <laughs> And I walked in, I said, Hey, whose truck is that? And they're like, That's Trevor. He's he's working on a podcast right now. And uh and so I connected with him originally to talk about uh our um truck setups and how to set him up for backcountry travel and all that stuff. That's where I first contacted with him. Yep. Unbelievable. Good small world. Well, he was the one who put me on to you. He was the one who said, man, you know, I know you're always looking for people to talk to, people that have some acumen, that can hold themselves in the discussion in a hard-hitting, probing kind of way. You need to reach out to John. And I said, I do. He says, yep. He loves wolves. And I was like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Here, this is the kind of podcast we, we want to have. Um, John let me let me before I, I dive in the deep end here and dive off the diving board. Uh John Trapp, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Um introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, your background. My name is John Trapp, and uh let's see where to start. I've had a few few careers. Um and, but I guess you know after the military, uh, my time in the military, I uh, wanted to go back to school, and I found a lot of interest in um, in predators, specifically wolves, and uh, went to school specifically to study them because I figured that was the best route to try to get the most uh, accurate. But you information. studied a general conservation biology degree, right? Yeah, so. My undergraduate degree is actually in political science and international relations, which... Um, wow, very close to conservation biology. Yeah, political science goes really well with wolves. There's a lot of politics, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> yeah, so I, so when I went back uh, to get my master's degree, that was conservation biology. And uh, nice. the focus was on carnivore ecology and studying the effects of carnivores on the landscape. and. Um, landscape change factors. So uh, I started off, I would say, on the conservation side of wolf management with a environmental group, Defenders of Wildlife. Um, and oh, that's like sacrilege to say on a hunting podcast, I know, John I, Trapp. Uh, you know, come on. I'm, I'm putting it out there. You guys can throw <laughs> spears. <laughs> well, we won't throw spears. Uh, so 
Yeah, that's the way I started. But it was in, it was an interesting start because I was co I was assigned to work with um, a wolf trapper and killer from from USDA Wildlife Services. So I was assigned with the person that was killing wolves that were that are dealing with wolves once they were con- in conflict and they needed to be removed from the landscape. That's who I was assigned with. So. Yeah. He and I had some really good discussions uh, late at night and and over some glasses of whiskey about um, w- what is the right thing. And I th- and the more I worked in the field, the more I realized that there's a lot of answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started the Mexican Wolf Project and worked in Arizona and New Mexico with the Mexican Gray Wolf. And uh, that's the most unique subspecies of the gray wolf. Um, from there, I met a very famous uh, Northern Rockies uh, wolf trapper named Carter Niemeyer. Uh, he ended up being my mentor and teaching me how to trap and radio collar wolves. But he connected me with a job in Idaho working with the Nez Perce tribe, which also mm. was a at the time, the tribe was managing wolves in Idaho, uh, and it was it was interesting to work for the tribe, to work in Idaho, and study it from that perspective, from a tribal perspective. Uh, from there, my- did you find that the tribe had a, a different viewpoint that was not being seen by anybody else? The, I guess. I assumed they had a particular viewpoint, and I was wrong, as I've been wrong many times. <laughs> did you go? Did you go in with a thought that they may have a traditional affinity type relationship approach to wolves? Yeah, yeah. I assumed the whole idea of brother wolf, I, I guess, would be the basic that tribal uh, Native Americans viewed the wolf as uh, a brother and mm-hmm. a uh, someone that they worked on the landscape together. But what I what I found from working with the Nez Perce tribe and, and also working with the White Mountain Apache tribes and San Carlos Apache tribes in Arizona and studying the issue further is that tribal relationships with the wolves really varied. Um, mm-hmm. On the Mexican Wolf Project, it part of the recovery area was butted up against the San Carlos Apache and the White Mountain Apache. And the White Mountain Apache were very much in support of wolves. And the San Carlos would say, if a wolf gets over here, we're, you either come get it or we're going we're gonna to take care of it. Um, mm-hmm. And that was similar to the Crow uh, reservation. Isn't it an affiliation, like an animal affiliation to the tribe itself? Like, I know that... Um... Australian Aboriginal tribes have different, I wouldn't, I'm not calling this deities in the Native American culture, but they have different affinities, you know, stingrays or sharks or crocodiles. Is that the, you find the same thing in Native Americans tribes? I, I think, you know, it really depended on the landscape and it often depended on their relationship with um native game like elk mm. um and so you know some of them um 
like the Lakota and different tribal, they, they have different relationships in which they honor the wolf and some don't. And I think that was unique to me because I just assumed that all, all Native Americans felt the same way, but they were really dependent on the culture in which they were living in because the tribal councils really are a subset of often of what's around them. They're, they're made up of ranchers, they're made up of hunters, and they're made up of politicians just like everywhere else. So they, those voices come through and they vary from, from tribe to tribe, their relationship with wolves. Mm. Mm. One of the things you, you told me when we first connected uh, before this podcast is, and it's stuck, it sort of drove home and you've already alluded to it, is that if someone says they've got the solution for wolves, the solution for wolves, they're lying. Yeah, exactly. If, if anyone ever says wolves always or wolves never, uh, right off the bat, you know, the rest of the sentences, <laughs> you can just discount it because wolves will always prove you wrong, just like people will. I think uh, it's a very complex issue with, with wolf management and the relationship between wolves and humans is very complex mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. John, why do you think that? I've got my own hypothesis. I don't want to uh, bias what you would say. Why do you think it is so controversial? Why is our wolves so controversial? Um, you know, I think that it, some of it has to do with the similarities between wolves and humans. Um, we are hunters and wolves are hunters. And that can cause the controversy in itself, right? Because we see some things in ourselves, in the wolves, in the wolf behavior, we recognize ourselves. And, um, and we can either appreciate that or we can uh, resent that. So the, you know, and it, it ranges depending on what your focus is. Um, I think, you know, ranchers have their own perspective and the livelihood, right. And their livestock and hunters have their own perspective as, as well. And, and outfitters may have a different perspective than your standard hunter, right. You know, outfitters, again, it's their livelihood. And, and so their relationship with the wolves is maybe different than and, and a hunter that's just going out on their own and appreciating being in the wild and appreciating the thrill of the hunt. Um, most of those hunters that I ran into thought it was awesome that wolves were out on the landscape because it added to their experience. Mm. But some of the, hunt, the outfitters that I dealt with were very concerned because it cut into their their bottom line livelihoods yeah and their yeah. livelihoods exactly well you essentially said exactly my hypothesis have you ever read the book uh by david guaman monster of god i have not no i will you need to read i'll it. add it to my it's like, a book where's about... my about <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a book about humans and their relationships with alpha predators and guaman is spelled q-u-a-m-m-e-n 
and they talk about the black, the brown bears in the Carpathian Mountains in Romania. They talk about saltwater crocodiles in Sri Lanka and Australia. That's where the whole deity affinity comes in. The that there's Aboriginal tribes that have saltwater crocodiles as their deity and don't ever get eaten by saltwater crocodiles, and then other Aboriginal tribes that have sharks and stingrays as their deities and they get taken by saltwater crocodiles all the time. And it's almost like, is there something else there or is it just an understanding of how they operate and how they interact with the ecosystem and the environment and whatnot? And wolves are in there, Siberian tigers are in there. But it's just this general outlook of exactly what you said, which is humans as alpha predators ourselves see something in an al another alpha that either represents ourselves, and so you cherish it, you um, worship it, you have an affinity to it, or you see it as competition for whatever it is that you are, um, you know, in competition with, whether it's for elk, whether it's for the prize of an animal, I don't know, but you nailed it. But you need to read the book. Shit, it's a brilliant book. Got it. I'm, I got it written down here. Um, let me ask a basic question, John. Are you a hunter? I am. What do you hunt? Uh, deer, uh, primarily whitetail. Um, and um, I have been putting in for elk tags also, but haven't been lucky on the draw. Uh, a lot of my buddies have been, and so I eat a lot of elk meat, <laughs> but I, I haven't been lucky on the draw myself yet, but I'm still working on it. Uh, let me ask the proverbial next question. Would you hunt a wolf? I would not hunt a wolf. <laughs> Why? Well, to me, I'm, my hunting ethic is that I'm going to hunt for meat i'm going to hunt for something that i've eat want to eat and uh or feed my family and um i've tried wolf before <laughs> and it you have i have yeah <laughs> and it is not good at all <laughs> so <laughs> so because of that i don't have... tell me about that why did, when were you in the position to try wolf and why did you try it well, there was uh, occasionally we <laughs> we have uh, you know there's I've dealt with a lot of dead wolves, um, okay, and uh, because they're either run over or they're sh you know shot illegally or sh or shot legally, and uh, there was a time on a the project I was on uh, one of the projects I won't say which one where. We had some wolf meat, and we decided we wanted to um, try it and try to cook it up. And it's just, I I find that predators, you know, I've had I've had bear before, and and um, I just don't I like it as much as I love the flavor of elk and bison and <laughs> and deer. So um, so I don't I don't find it as something I really want to eat. It's my choice, yeah. <laughs> Look, I don't think I've ever had anyone on this podcast, or even, I don't think I've heard anyone say that they've actually tried wolf. Uh, so, interesting. It, did Was it comparable to bear? 
Um, I would, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say... It was, was it super livery, super gamey? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It just didn't, the flavor was not, um, not good. So just very, very tangy and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just, yeah. Um, I know this may be a, a question out of left field, but do you have an issue with people that chase mature animals, like, you know, that they're not actually going for the meat. Yes, the meat is a byproduct. They utilize all of the meat. But someone, you know, one of your buddies may be chasing an elk and he wants a mature six by six. Right. And so let me make sure I understand that question. Rephrase that. Do you have an issue with that in that kind of hunting? Let me ask that, like, that's, I didn't quite say it like it, but trophy hunting essentially like but they, the guy is not actually trophy hunting he's just after a mature animal and he wants to take a mature animal off the landscape knowing full well that you know you and i and from a conservation f- perspective that's probably the right animal to take if you're sustaining a population into the future yeah yeah that's totally fine with me i don't have any problem with that i mean i think to me hunting is an experience of of watching the animals and making a choice on what feels right. And that's that choice is different for for everyone. And uh so I'm not I don't I wouldn't uh judge that decision. You know, when it one interesting dynamic in the effect of hunting on uh like let's say elk and the there's a lot of things impacting elk numbers, right? Especially, you know, where I live north of Yellowstone, the the, the large herd was the northern elk herd. And, mm-hmm. and uh, wolves are one of the most studied mammals in the world. Uh, there's a lot of research around them, but I, I would give the caveat that research is often this little narrow sliver of reality. And for me, I utilize research to kind of validate what I observe on the landscape. And it kind of, it either makes sense to me or it doesn't. And I think it really depends on where you are on the landscape and what, how the study is done and what it, you know, what are the factors of the study. And so it's, I think research can be used a lot of ways. And unfortunately, it's not always used in productive ways and it's often misunderstood. But a basic piece of information is that if you look at the average age of elk that have been killed by wolves in the mm-hmm. in the northern range, um, especially in the first twenty years after the wolves came back, the the average age of the elk, cow elk, and elk that are being killed are about uh, fourteen years old, and we see that they're reproductive success and rates really start to to diminish for cow elk after they're um about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And so a majority of these the wolf killed elk or are in that upper age class from from you know 12 to up to 20 years old there you know. Wow. And then you compare that to human hunt uh, harvest of elk which the average age is somewhere between, you know, around four or five years old, right? Interesting. And so that 
terminology from a science perspective or is the difference between compensatory or additive killing. Mm-hmm. And um, additive killing means that the wolves killed an elk that otherwise would have bred, survived, reproduced, you know, and, and lasted. And produced more elk yeah, in, the in the future, right? Where compensatory killing means they killed something that was probably not a, a super viable part of the population anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you look at how, and this isn't to single out human hunters versus wolves, but it is a, a way to, to look at how different influences of hunting and predation and bears select differently than cougars and bears impact is you know different than how wolves impact and all these things what does the data show for bears and how they impact elk herds is it very different it, it it's substantially different so um there was a lot of concern with wolves and elk calf survival and um but wolves represent a very small percentage of elk calf mortality maybe somewhere around 10 percent um whereas bears grizzly bears and black bears uh represent somewhere around 60 percent six zero of elk calf mortality Wow. wow right so when you look at how that species affects um is that a colorado piece of data is that tied to the northern herd as well, or is this generally across the west? That's, that's uh, well, it's in the area where there's grizzly bear habitat and, and um, black bear habitat. So primarily Yellowstone, Wyoming, mm-hmm. Montana, mm-hmm. Uh, that area. So the northern elk herd, which is mm-hmm. northern Yellowstone uh, into uh, Montana. So... Um, so when we, there's a concern about um, elk calf survival, we really have to look at all the factors, not just the impact of of wolves. So bears are very meticulous and knowledgeable in how they hunt cal- elk calves. I was was in Yellowstone one time, uh, headed towards an old wolf den, and I watched a grizzly bear um, moving across the landscape. And this bear was just lined out, big grizzly bear. And it was just, it was moving, moving and moving. And I tracked it for miles because I was driving alongside of it. And I could see it moving along the, through the sagebrush and grass. And uh, it disappeared up into the, into the tree line, right where an old wolf den was that I wanted to go to. Um, I uh, waited some time to make sure the bear had left the area. We went in there very cautiously, very noisily, and spent about 20 minutes. I think there was 15 of us in the group that we were out there tracking wolves and talking about wolves. Um, and we moved around the, the corner and found a brand new elk calf, just a, just laying there, hadn't even really stood up yet, covered in spots. And we, we moved away from it as not to bother it. And I looked up slope uh, into the tree line. And uh, it took my brain a moment to register, but there was a grizzly bear about 30 yards away just oh my God. looking right at me, right into my eyes. And as it looked into my eyes, it, it had an elk calf in its mouth, and it just no, it didn't. pulled really? it down and shredded this elk calf into just blood and flesh, just 
shredded it while looking me right in the eyes. 30 yards from you? 30 yards. Oh my gosh. So at this point, my whole group that I'm with doesn't even know it's there. I'm the only one that sees it. So I very calmly say, everyone, come towards me, back down the slope. Let's head down the slope. And I moved them all together in a group, got the bear spray out. And the bear never moved. It just finished. It was on top of its calf. And and it, I don't even know if it knew the calf we saw was there, the other calf that we were looking at. But what it had sensed from miles away was that that calf that it found being born. It could mm-hmm. smell the birthing process from miles away, and it beelined it and killed. The other thing that grizzly bears do is they actually have been noted to grid calving areas in the sagebrush. Oh, geez. And so where wolves may kill a calf if they step on it and find it, you know, uh, bears are meticulously searching the landscape looking for mm-hmm. elk calves. They know where the cows mm-hmm. have their elk calves and they go to those places and they, they hammer elk calves within the first three months of their life. They just are a big impact. Jeez. Well, what an amazing, uh, what a, what an experience. Um, yeah, uh, just the power, right? Of just seeing it dismember that thing right in front of you. Yeah, it's it'll ever forever be in my uh, my slide tray up here in the head. Um, but it it it's fascinating. I think most hunters. It's fascinating to see the well, one first the the dichotomy between different predators and how they approach their prey. And the data is data, right? Then well, I'm a scientist, you're a scientist, data is data to show there's a clear difference there based on what you said. And I think most hunters, to your point in the beginning, I know myself, I know Cody, who's a part of this po- the podcast. I, I think it's pretty cool to have wolves on the landscape. Hear them howling, be a part of the whole system. And without them, there's a missing component to the system. Um, you know, a lot of systems in the States don't have an alpha predator and obviously humans have to assume that role, um, of alpha predators, but I'm also very cognizant of the, the fact that humans have influenced the landscape tremendously, right? We've got highways and habitat disconnectivity all over the show and fragments and corridors, migration corridors, and escape corridors, and security habitat, all of those things are not how they were in the past. And so I say that purposely all to say, because when we first connected, I ended our conversation with a question. And I said, don't answer the question. I want to keep it for the podcast. (laughs) You are a hunter. We've established that. We've also established that you're a meat hunter. But we've also established that you will not hunt a wolf. Would you, what are your thoughts to people hunting wolves from a population management perspective? My, uh, you know, my initial thought, and often where I enter conversations about this with folks, is that um, wolves and elk and bison and deer and cougars and bears existed for tens of thousands of years without our, without our input, without us Correct. affecting their population dynamics, right? Correct. Now, to your point, 
the landscape is not what it once was. It is heavily yeah. impacted by our actions. And it's, and when we look at things that affect, as you mentioned, elk numbers, um, habitat fragmentation and um, disease or, or feeding elk, which causes unnatural congregations of elk and potentially disease transmission and um, hard winters, drought, hunt predation, all these things, all these factors are affecting elk numbers. Um, and wolves are one of those factors. So when we look at a, maybe an elk herd that's in decline, uh, right now in the, in the Yellowstone ecosystem, elk are the primary prey of wolves. In Northwest Montana, uh, white-tailed deer have often been a primary. It's what they are encountering most on the landscape. So wolves, one nice way about the way they affect the numbers as is what they're encountering most on the landscape is what they are hunting for. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, fine to a certain degree, except for these landscapes where we have a lot of livestock and they're running into more mm -hmm. livestock than they're running into elk. We know what's going to happen. There's going to be conflict with livestock. So thinking about how a population in decline, there might be an elk herd that's in decline. There was one uh, in the Madison Valley was a particular area. It's in Western Yellowstone. And when the wolves came back to that area, they heavily impacted that, that elk herd. The numbers dropped substantially. But I would always argue wolves were, they might have been the tipping point. They were one of many factors. Uh, but there has been some, some knowledge in, like, in how if we were to reduce predation pressure, on a, on, a, on a herd that's struggling, allowing them to build that momentum and reproductive success and population growth, that it may help an elk herd recover. So there may be some cases where wolf control or management helps a particular herd um, kind of overcome that curve of, of maybe a downhill progression in their, in their prey or in their you know, productive, reproductive success. But there's been other areas where it, many of the factors may seem similar, where the wolf predation has almost no effect in other areas where we've seen elk population increasing in the presence of wolves. Where, where do we see that happening, John? Those are, those area in Western Montana as well. A lot of these areas aren't that far apart because the elk, the, you know, the the area where wolves are populating is not that big of an area. Mm -hmm. And I can get you the specific on that study. Um, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks had looked at these different elk populations. So the question is uh, recognizing wolves are a factor, but how much of a factor are they? And what are the other factors that are impacting the elk? What do we have control over as humans? Like we can obviously do lethal take. We we did lethal take of elk in the Yellowstone area for about 50 years, <laughs> early in the 1900s, right? Up till 1968, we were killing elk to keep the numbers artificially low. Mm. In the absence of the predator wolf specifically that was no longer on the landscape. 
1968, we stopped killing elk in a natural regulation role is what they called it in the National Park Service. And we saw those numbers of elk really grow, mm-hmm. especially in that northern elk herd. So they went up to almost 20,000 elk in the northern herd. And the range scientists had estimated that maybe that landscape could support about 5,000 elk in a healthy way, where they have good body condition, they have good, right? And so here's this population that in 1995 had almost 20,000 elk and their condition was not good. Very, mm-hmm. there were A lot of them were very old. There was a lot of sickness. There was a lot of poor body condition. And so when they dropped the, introduced the wolves back into Yellowstone in 1995 and 1996, they, the elk numbers started dropping dramatically, um, but not just because of the wolves. It was because they were already kind of what would be considered at a tipping point. They had surpassed the carrying capacity of the land and they were already due for a, a, you know, a drop in the population dynamics. So. I guess does that does it kind of get at your question there? I, I, kinda I guess went. maybe maybe let me get your opinion on this. Mm-hmm. Is it is it a question of value, John? So let's just I'll use Idaho as an example. Idaho has a tremendous wolf population. Mm-hmm. There's I don't know the data. I haven't looked at the research. There is I've heard of people saying the elk of Idaho is not what it used to be. Is that response a value judgment on the idea that we value, we, the hunting community, value the, the, the carrying capacity to be almost at its tipping point for species like elk in the landscape versus when wolves are in the landscape, that population is maybe nowhere near carrying capacity? Because of opportunity, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, it is all about opportunity to hunt these species. Right. But I think most of the hunters that I know um, are looking for a healthy specimen, a healthy elk, right? A healthy deer, a a healthy bison. And so what... What has formed the beauty of the elk that we see in front of us today over the millennia? Wolves, definitely one of those factors, right? And so, and if we are shooting, and if something is beyond carrying capacity, it's not at its, at its health, it's not at its prime. Selective pressure on, on um, the genetics of a herd by removing certain animals creates a better, stronger elk. Mm-hmm. So when we remove the predation, the pressure of wolves, which are very specific in the way they select for elk. So wolves are coursing predators, which means they're going to run their prey. Mm-hmm. And are they 100% of the time always only going to kill the sick and the old and the, the injured? No. N- no, not 100% of the time, but a majority of the time they do. They're selecting for something that's showing a weakness, and they're removing it from the, the breeding pool. And that weakness may be because of an injury, or it may be because of something genetically, but they're constantly kind of sifting and 
altering the DNA of the the subsequent elk herd. So mm -hmm. wolves are an important part of creating the strong, healthy elk that we enjoy. And so are bears. Mm -hmm. And so are cougars. If you think mm -hmm. of the, the selective pressure of cougars, I like to, you know, there's been studies that show when, when there's an elk or in the valley bottoms, particularly in morning and evening, because wolves are crepuscular hunters, they're hunting at dusk and dawn. Um, particularly in those times when wolves enter the valleys, the elk move to the tree lines because wolves like to hunt in open areas like that because they're coursing predators. But as the, so when that happens, the elk move to the tree lines and which hunter are they now moving closer to? And that is mountain lions. Mountain lions are up closer in the tree lines and the rocks they're they're and they have a a different selective pressure so where wolves are running and sifting and sorting and looking for weakness in general not always but best we can tell and then they move up into the tree line now lions are selecting for ones that maybe aren't quite as alert <laughs> right mm. so they're hoping the the lions are waiting for ones that kind of get closer and aren't so alert and then the lions can jump on them and and get their their claws into them and bite into the back of their neck and kill them. So, so lions are, have a different selective pressure on the mentality of the, of the elk. The alertness of the elk is affected by that, as well as the, the coursing pre pressure of the, of the uh, wolves and then the hunting pressure of humans. All these things are making the elk stronger and hey. better in the long hey. run. That's a lot. I think, and all these, I uh, should have said this from the beginning, these answers are never simple, right? No, it's they're not. They're not. Su super complicated. And the thing is, you've got, you've got multiple societal values competing on the landscape, and you've got to recognize that hunters aren't the only value that is, needs to be considered. And in my viewpoint sort of this is my i'd like to get your your take on this when i think about a dynamic ecosystem one that you've just painted i see from my perspective i see the need for some sort of sustainable take of wolves and here's why because of the value of hunting the conservation models we have, all of the sort of spirals that tie into it on a state-specific basis, There's, there is a value to having a prey species closer to population objectives. Dare, dare I assume population objectives and carrying capacity are the same thing for a second? And if that means managing wolves or managing predators, cougars, bears, wolves, all in the same boat, so that the elk herd or the prey herd is at 70% capacity, 80% capacity, enhancing opportunities for hunting. To me, that's the best balance I see. Thoughts? I 100% agree with you. I think... 
I agree with what you're saying. I think the challenge is <clears throat> that we as humans often don't do a great job of of managing in a I guess in the and I think it's because we a lot of our managers and a lot of our I know a lot of my friends are fish and game biologists and they really care about what they do and they do a really good job. Um and they try to set quotas based on what they're seeing on the landscape to effectively en enable the, the features in which you're describing. Um, but often politics ends up being what sets hunting quotas mm -hmm. um, or fish and game commissions who are a group of people sitting up at the top of the state mandating, right? Mm -hmm. And and often the biologists aren't the ones that get the final say. The biologists I trust in, I believe in, but sometimes the politics gets involved and is not the most effective way. So when we, we apply, the other downfall is applying research broadly as opposed to localized research, because I think when there's so many factors, like I mentioned, you know, three different elk populations, one with wolves that our elk numbers are decreasing, elk numbers are stabilized, and elk numbers are um, increasing. What are those factors? And we have to rely on our local biologists to set those, to figure that out, and to make the best decisions. So, so I agree with what you're saying. I see some sometimes the the fault in our in our system of of how we make those decisions. And just like anything else the, in our um, society, a lot of our problems we have come from politics, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. And, you know, again, if I, if I was the king of the world for a second, I would, I would further that state of game management and recognize, number one, the factors, the confounding variables like weather, climate, droughts, floods, heavy winters that on an annual basis, it's very difficult to swing, you know, this way or that way on a quarter. And I know that there are a lot of states moving towards this model where it's almost like a rolling average. You've got this five-year data set and this rolling three-year average just rolls with, and it allows you to sort of stabilize the, the wobble of the natural environment, the background noise that is the floods, that is the drought, that is the yada, yada, yada. Like, for instance, Arizona, for their, their new game regulations, set in place this three-year rolling average for black bear and mountain lions in terms of their taken and female quotas and stuff like that, mm -hmm. which is brilliant because you, you, you don't, uh, you know, I don't know if you're a parent or not, you don't, and I fail at this all the time, you don't just like, in the moment, like, ah, oh, we're going to do this. Mm. You know, it, it's a, it, you think about it and you change and adapt, and that's what we have to do for the environment. Yeah, 100%. We have to figure out what's the best way to make those decisions and not make them in a rash manner and, uh, and think about the long-term ob objective. And I think... Fish and game agencies in general have have proven that they're capable of doing that across uh, across the 
west for sure um in managing uh ungulates and and predators and so i didn't finish from the beginning but after the nez Perce tribe i went to wyoming where i worked for the u.s fish and wildlife service which is the agency that was is um tasked with uh implementing the endangered species act and then i ended up working for montana fish wildlife and parks in montana so I had a diversity of experiences in wolf management from the agency that administers the Endangered Species Act to a pro-wolf group to working with a group that USDA Wildlife Services is killing wolves. Um, I was a trapper of wolves. I've, I've trapped a lot of wolves because that was the main way we would put radio collars on them and monitor their populations. So I've I've... I've trapped a lot of wolves. Um, I've darted a lot of wolves. Um, and uh, but anyway, just completing that thought, I think that those those agencies that are that are charged with the, the biologists that work for those agencies really care about what they're doing, and I think that they uh, do the best they can. And sometimes they're they got one arm behind their back because of the politics. No, hundred percent. And I'm glad you clarified those additional career steps that you've taken because a lot of people are like, well, who the hell is this guy talking about all of this bloody wolf data out of uh, Yellowstone <laughs> and whatnot? Um, before I let you go, I'm keen to get your, your insights and thoughts. You worked on the Mexican gray wolf recovery for a long time. I'm very good friends with Jim Heffelfinger, the wildlife science coordinator out of the Arizona Game Fish Department. and one of the things we discussed was this Colorado wolf reintroduction and its potential implications to undoing all of the yeoman's work that has been done on Mexican gray wolf recovery in New Mexico and Arizona in terms of hybridization. Yeah, I think that's... Some of those same related questions came are formed in the Northern Rockies where the wolves that were introduced came from Canada and that which, you know, some considered to be different, you know, that the phenology was different. Maybe the genealogy was different. Um, with the Mexican gray wolf, which is Canis lupus bailei, it is the most... Uh, distinct subspecies of, mm -hmm. of gray wolf, right? So, but I think, and so trying, and the red wolf, which is in the east, Canis, Canis rufus, um, it was also had some unique genetics, right? And definitely the phenology was very distinct between the eastern timber wolf and the red wolf. I mean, the phen phenologically, they were almost, not even the same. If you looked right. at the two, you wouldn't think they were related. But genetic studies showed that the genes were almost the same. So what causes that, and it, it ultimately comes down to the landscape, right? The landscape forms the morphology of the animal. Um, so I think it, I think instead of introducing more wolves, which is a just a nightmare in general like managing wolves and introducing wolves is it's it's a problem but more importantly if we're able to maintain habitat corridors right 
and those habitat corridors are for for elk and deer and and wolves and lions and that if we can somehow protect those those corridors in our landscape north to south because as we know with climate change it's changing it's and you know and now I'm I'm a wildland firefighter and I deal with a lot of fire on the landscape and it's changing too and which also has a pretty unique impact on on elk and wolves and the, the relationship fire it's really interesting how it all works together and that's why I love studying it but um so I think uh, importantly if we can maintain habitat corridors to allow animals to disperse which they are wolves can disperse hundreds of miles 300 500 miles they can disperse not not a problem but they need some sort of safe habitat to be able to do that and that would allow the mexican gray wolf to disperse to the north and it would allow the northern rockies wolf to disperse to the south and they're going to find some places on the landscape where they can they can exist i know that like the rocky mountain um, National Park has a lot of elk, a lot of elk. It's a problem. They don't have any elk, and they keep saying, "Well, we need wolves here." And um, introducing wolves in there would be very challenging um, from a management perspective. But more importantly, maintaining those corridors so that they, when they get there, they can get there and they can exist. And if there's a problem and we need to remove wolves lethally or non-lethally, will you do it? If there's a problem with elk numbers and we need to respond, we respond there, right? It'll, it'll happen if we, if we let it. We don't need to introduce any more in my perspective. Yeah, good points, good points. Um, John, I, I knew this was gonna be a good one. Um, I really appreciate, Cody's probably listening to this podcast and going, oh, you bloody nerds, man. Robert, you just love these kind of nerdy conversations. And I do. I'm a scientist. I have a PhD in wetland ecology. And that's my DNA. My DNA is research and understanding and, under and just looking at systems and understanding and knowing that they're complex and they're nuanced. And you're right, because of just those two things, when someone says, Wolves always, wolves never. It's the same thing as bloody any wildlife. It, it, you, you just you, you can't pigeonhole anything because things change, different landscapes, different variables. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a really good conversation. Anytime you come, want to come back, uh, love to have you. Um, we may. Um, we may bring you back if these two bills in Colorado move forward, which I think they will, the Wolf Compensation Fund, as well as the um, 10J rule. And um, yeah, we may have you back as soon as like wolf starts getting hot and heavy again in Colorado. And maybe when they put wolves on the ground for the first time, we can talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, big guy. See ya. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.